You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In February of 1542, Spanish conquistador Francisco de Oriana found himself in a strange situation. After marching over the Andes Mountains, he had come to a very large river. He suspected that the river was the Amazon, which poured into the Atlantic Ocean many, many miles to the east. Oriana, like so many Spanish conquistadors, had come to the depths of the jungles in search of treasure. And like so many early adventurers, his lust for gold would quickly give way to his desire to survive. So, Oriana was basically stranded in the middle of the jungle, and the only road available to him was the mighty river. And thus Oriana would strike out east on one of the great treks of discovery known to man. Before him was more than 4,000 miles of river, twisting and turning through the jungles of South America. Perhaps if Oriana had known how long and difficult the journey east would be, he would have tried to return the way he had come. But he did not, and the resulting journey, traveling the entire length of the Amazon, would be epic in nature. So on with our episode, Francisco de Oriana and the Exploration of the Amazon River. Francisco de Oriana was born in 1511 in Trujillo, Spain. Oriana came from a well-to-do family in Trujillo, and it is believed he was related to Francisco Pizarro, the man who would eventually conquer the Incan Empire. It's likely that Oriana grew up being taught the arts of war. He likely learned how to ride and fence and so forth. This is supported by the fact that when he arrived in the New World as a teenager, probably around 1527, he would serve as a soldier, a conquistador, like so many other men in his position. Oriana would land in Panama, which at this time was the primary base of operation for the Spanish for expeditions in South and Central America. Thus, Panama would serve as the staging area for the Spanish invasion of Peru. Ah, Peru. Peru meant the Incan Empire. It was the city of Goldtail that was actually true. Francisco Pizarro, Oriana's cousin, would reach Peru in 1528 and find evidence of the empire's vast riches. The following year, he was granted a charter by the Spanish crown to conquer the lands. In 1530, Pizarro, as well as four of his brothers, would sail to the New World intent on conquering the Incas, like Cortes had done with the Aztecs a decade before. One of those five Pizarro brothers was 18-year-old Gonzalo Pizarro. Gonzalo was actually Francisco's half-brother, and I mention him because he will be critical to our story later, so let us not forget him. Gonzalo Pizarro, brother of Francisco Pizarro. So, the expedition into Peru would arrive in 1531, and for the Spanish, their timing could not have been better. The Spanish would arrive just as a bitter and bloody civil war was being concluded. The turmoil would allow the Spanish, whose force was really not very large, to essentially march to the Incan capital of Cuzco. There, Francisco Pizarro would seize the Incan emperor at Tahulpa and extract a huge ransom of treasure for his release. But Pizarro would never release the emperor, and all-out war would break out between the Spanish and the Indians. The Incan empire would be defeated in 1533, and Atahualpa would be executed. It was a stunning victory for Pizarro, as he lay claim to a land that was ripe for plundering. But by 1535, Pizarro and his primary partner in the expedition, Diego de Almagro, began to argue about the division of spoils of the rich lands. This wasn't about splitting up treasure. That was kind of easy to do. It was about dividing up the actual lands that they had conquered. In Peru, as well as many other places the Spanish had conquered, the soldiers who took part in the conquest weren't necessarily paid off with gold or silver. Instead, they received lands and estates. 
This was a common practice. Good lands were valuable. Crops, livestock, and natural resources provide a steady source of income for many of these conquistadors. It should be noted that these lands included the people that were on them, the native Indians, and it was essentially slave labor. So, the practice of giving land to the soldiers involved in a conquest encouraged these men to remain there, start families, and establish roots. It made for a strong colony. The way the Incan Empire collapse shook out was that Francisco Pizarro and his followers gained control of what is basically northern Peru. The Almagro group, also called the Chile faction, took control of the lands to the south, essentially southern Peru, near what is now Chile. And in time, these two factions would be at war. But before we get to that war, let's jump back a moment to catch up with Francisco de Oriana. Oriana would see his first military actions in Panama and Nicaragua. He was only 16 when he began his military career, and he would become a good soldier, and more importantly, a respected and skilled leader. So, with Francisco Pizarro's expedition against the Incas, other Spanish conquistadors headed to South America to try and get their share of the loot. One of these men was Francisco de Oriana. It is believed that Oriana arrived in Peru sometime in 1533, possibly taking part in the final battles that defeated the Incas. He was, of course, loyal to his relatives, the Pizarros. He would build a house in Puerto Vallejo, near modern-day Guayaquil, in Ecuador, and his home would sort of become a safe house and meeting place for Pizarro-aligned men. We should note that while the Incan Empire was defeated, that didn't mean that the natives were all docile and friendly. Many of the Incan forces had retreated high into the mountains. There they would launch raids against the Spanish. Oriana would distinguish himself when Incan factions attacked and put under siege the cities of Lima and Cuzco. Upon hearing of this, Oriana raised a contingent of 80 men, including a dozen horses, which he bought with his own money, and marched toward Lima to help drive back the Indians. He would then do the same thing with Cuzco. Thus, Oriana was turning out not only to be a good soldier and a respected leader, but a man that the Pizarro clan could count on in times of trouble. When civil war broke out between the Pizarro and Almagro factions, Oriana would, of course, side with his cousins, the Pizarros. The Pizarro-Almagro civil war would culminate with the Battle of Las Salinas on April 26, 1538. Oriana took part in the battle, in which the Pizarro forces routed the Almagro faction. Diego de Almagro would be later captured and executed, as well as decapitated. Francisco Pizarro was now the sole ruler of Peru. As for Oriana, he would be rewarded for his good service to the Pizarros. He was given a commission to settle a new city, Santiago, which would later be called Guayaquil. Guayaquil is located on the western bank of the Guayas River, which flows into the Pacific Ocean at the Gulf of Guayaquil. It was really a re-establishment of a settlement, but we won't quibble. The city was formally established on July 25, 1538, and Oriana is recognized as the founder. Today, Guayaquil is the largest city in Ecuador with over 2 million people. So chalk one up there for Francisco de Oriana. Next, by 1541, Oriana would be appointed lieutenant governor of both Puerto Vallejo and Guayaquil. He was just 30 years old. One thing I want to note about Oriana was that he took an interest in the language of the native people, and he learned to speak several different dialects. He seems to have been one of those people who could pick up another language very easily. It is a skill that will likely save his life later when he is in the jungles of the Amazon. Next, I want to spend a little time with the second most important person in our story, and that is Gonzalo Pizarro, the half-brother of Francisco Pizarro. Born in 1510, Gonzalo had been with his brother in the conquest of Peru. He had a reputation as an outstanding horseman, swordsman, and soldier, not to mention he was supposedly handsome and a notorious womanizer. But he was also said to have been cruel, impetuous, and greedy. He was the worst stereotype of the Spanish conquistador, Torture, rape, robbery, murder, they were all on his blotter. He was not a nice man. Gonzalo Pizarro would be made governor of Quito by his brother in 1541. But Gonzalo was not the kind of guy to sit around and govern a colony. He was a man of actions and deeds. Also, he yearned for fame and glory and riches. It was his brother, Francisco, who was fabulously wealthy and famous, not himself. And Gonzalo desperately wanted to be out of his brother's shadow. And this will all take us up to the stories of El Dorado. Yes, it is another City of Gold story. We just can't get enough of these, can we? We often think of El Dorado as a place, but the earliest stories of El Dorado are of El Rey Dorado, 
the Golden King, or the Gilded One. According to legend, there was a king who ruled a wealthy and advanced civilization. Each day the king would be covered with gold dust by his subjects, and he would take a bath in a lake, thus filling the lake with gold. Thus, El Dorado was really a person at this point, not really a place. Of course, the city of gold is something that really did exist, in a fashion. First with the Aztecs, it was Tenochtitlan, and then with the Incas, it was Cuzco. The men who conquered these cities would become fabulously wealthy in every conquistador dream that they would find the next city of gold. So, while the story of the gilded man swept through the homes and greedy minds of the Spanish, another item of interest cropped up at this time. A Spanish soldier, Gonzalo Diaz de Pineda, had recently crossed over the Andes and explored the area east of Peru. He had reported finding cinnamon trees in a remote region of the jungle, a place dubbed La Canala, the Cinnamon Valley. Pineda said that he had fought many natives and been forced to retreat from the region. Now, cinnamon was not gold, but it was just as coveted. As we have seen in many episodes of Explorers, everybody loves a good spice. The potential of a new source of cinnamon would be almost as good as any city of gold. So, the year is 1541, and Francisco Pizarro, the region's ruler, had a great idea. He suggested to his brother, Gonzalo, that he lead an expedition east, over the mountains, in search of the Cinnamon Valley, as well as El Dorado, not to mention any other valuable places he could sack. The move was a good one. It got Gonzalo out of town and into the field where he was at his best. For Gonzalo, it was his chance to find glory and wealth and get out of the shadow of his famous brother. Francisco de Oriana, like Gonzalo Pizarro, was captivated by the tales of the city of gold. He dreamed of conquering his own Incan or Aztec empire. So, when he heard about Gonzalo's upcoming expedition, he headed to Quito and met with his cousin, expressing his desire to go with him. Oriana offered to pay his own expenses, and even outfit some men for the expedition. For Pizarro, this was a pretty sweet deal. He would add to his ranks a respected and trusted conquistador, plus some men, at virtually no cost. Thus, he welcomed Oriana into the fold and made the young man his lieutenant general, the expedition's second-in-command. The only hitch to all of this was that Pizarro was nearly ready to march, and Oriana was not. Oriana had to return to Guayaquil, hand off administrative duties, raise and outfit a force of his own, and then return to Quito, which was several hundred miles away. Pizarro, however, was not interested in waiting that long. He was concerned that some other enterprising conquistador would beat him to his prize. Thus, Pizarro would agree to lead his men into the mountains to the valley of Shumaco, which was east of Quito. There he would rest his men and wait for Oriana to catch up. So, Gonzalo Pizarro would thus set off from Quito in February of 1541. He had an impressive force with him. There would be 220 soldiers, many veterans of the Incan conflict. Their numbers included crossbowmen, infantrymen, and arquebusiers. An arquebusier used an arquebus, which was an early form of musket. In addition to the 220 soldiers, there would be 200 horses. This was a huge number, as horses were very expensive. As a comparison, Cortes had only 16 horses when he engaged the Aztecs a decade before. Horses were highly effective in combat, as the natives had never seen them before and were terrified of them. Next, as terrifying as the horse were the warhounds. Pizarro reportedly had 2,000 of them. The Spanish had used war dogs to great effect in the New World. The Indians had never experienced packs of huge dogs that would literally tear apart their comrades. To feed the many mouths in the army, there would be two to 3,000 pigs, a great herd of swine that would be driven behind the made force. And then, to transport everything, there would be 4,000 native porters, essentially slaves, chained and shackled together. They would carry the many supplies, including ammunition, gunpowder, food, and building materials, the latter for making bridges, boats, or whatever was necessary. And lastly, there would be many native women brought along, who would cook and clean and serve as sex slaves. The expedition headed east from Quito, starting at over 9,000 feet in elevation. Higher and higher they would go. The forested mountains that they moved into would, in short order, be cloaked in clouds. Quickly the roads vanished, the footpaths then disappeared, and the expedition took to following llama trails, walking single file. Eventually, even those trails were swallowed up by the mountains. Also, the air grew colder as the expedition went higher. The Indian porters were not dressed for such altitudes, and many soon became sick. Another thing, remember, the region had been wrecked by war for years. The mountains were thus filled with Indians, many of whom had fled to the higher altitudes to be free from the Spanish invaders. 
and these people were not friendly to the great expedition. They weren't going to challenge such a large force. The horses and dogs, frankly, terrified them. But they weren't going to help the Spanish either. If Gonzalo Pizarro had hoped to obtain food or supplies from the locals, he was sadly mistaken. The Indians gathered up their belongings and simply melted into the background. So into the mountains the men went. Men were getting sick, it was getting colder and colder, and the going was getting rougher and rougher. The threat of attack from renegade natives was everywhere. So what do you think could happen next? Well, how about an earthquake? Yes, a nearby volcano, Antisana, erupted. The eruption wouldn't threaten the Spanish force, but it did cause an earthquake, which shook the ground and caused the native buildings to collapse. It was a bad omen. The Spanish expedition had gone only 30 miles from Quito, and already 100 of the Indians were dead from the cold. And during the earthquake, many others had managed to escape, fleeing down the mountainside. Despite all the problems, Pizarro would push on. They would spend a month ascending the Andes, and Pizarro was, as noted, a stern taskmaster. He wasn't afraid to whip or beat or even kill the Indians. The expedition would cross the Andes at 14,000 feet and descend to the other side, hacking their way through the cloud forest. It was here that the rains came. Pizarro later said that the rains never stopped long enough for the shirts on their backs to dry. And there wasn't just rainforest now to breach. There were rocky crevices, rivers, and streams that had to be navigated. The Spanish took to building rope bridges to keep moving forward. The men would be forced to lead every animal over the bridge, one by one, a tedious process that made progress immensely slow. Pizarro would eventually reach Shumaco, a village in a valley of the same name. It was a lush region, about 110 miles over the Andes. Pizarro had been led to believe that he would be welcomed at the village, and that he would be able to obtain needed provisions. However, the throng of Spanish soldiers, the packs of warhounds and horses, not to mention word of his harsh treatment of the natives, had reached Shumaco, and the Indians had fled. There would be no relief here. So, with his army at Shumaco, Pizarro elected to stop and rest. His men needed to recover, and besides, he would wait for Oriana. So back to Francisco de Oriana. Before he left to join Pizarro, the young conquistador had to wrap up administrative duties in Guayaquil, and then purchase gear and equipment and sign on soldiers, all at his own expense. In the end, he would have 23 men, mostly veteran soldiers eager to make some loot. Oriana led his small force to Quito sometime after Pizarro's departure. He was warned, repeatedly, that heading into the mountains with such a small force was foolish. There were too many rogue bands of natives that would attack them. But Oriana had promised Pizarro that he would follow, and so he did. The Indians in the mountains were certainly afraid of 220 Spaniards, but 23 Spaniards? That was a different story. So, as Oriana and his force got into the mountains, they were soon attacked, and it wasn't long before the few horses that they had were either dead or had been lost in the fighting. Oriana and his men would quickly find themselves bogged down by the natives. Oriana decided to send a couple of men east, the goal to reach Pizarro and have him send a relief force. The ploy would work, and the men would slip past the Indians and eventually reach Pizarro at Chumaco. A relief force would be dispatched, and by late March 1541, Oriana would be united with his commander. So, with the forces combined, Pizarro decided to personally lead a force east toward where the Valley of Cinnamon was reportedly located. A force of 70 men would strike out on foot. There would be no horses, as the Spanish had quickly learned that horses lost their effectiveness in the jungle. The Spanish reconnaissance force would be in for a brutal journey. They would find the jungle thick and difficult to navigate. It rained constantly, and the grounds were boggy. Rivers would become swollen and impassable. Plus, there were poisonous snakes and scorpions to deal with, as well as vampire bats. For 70 days, Pizarro would basically wander around. He didn't really have any specific clue as to where to go. However, in his wanderings, Pizarro did find one of his goals, cinnamon trees. Or maybe not. It seems that Pizarro and the men had found something, but it was probably not cinnamon trees, as they were not native to this part of the world. While we don't know the exact answer, it's likely that Pizarro found some plant that gave off a cinnamon-like aroma. Remember, none of these men really knew what a cinnamon tree looked like, so if they found something that gave off an aroma of cinnamon, they probably thought it was a cinnamon tree. No matter what they found, it would be a disappointment. There were no plantations of cinnamon trees, just some scattered plants. Pizarro even captured some local natives and interrogated them, which means torture, by the way, asking them to reveal the location of more of the trees. 
or El Dorado, but they knew nothing. Pizarro recognized that the trees were not commercially viable. His valley of cinnamon was turning to dust. By the way, there are some pretty brutal descriptions available of Pizarro's treatment of the Indians. At one point, he was convinced that some of the Indians were hiding something from him, so he had the natives stretched out over open fires while they were still alive, burning them. He then fed the Indians to his dogs. As I noted, he was not a nice man. So, defeated, Pizarro headed back to the main body, but on his way, he came across a large river. It was the Coca River, which is a tributary of the Napo River, which ultimately feeds into the Amazon. Pizarro quickly realized that this was an important waterway, and soon found native villages along it. At one of these villages, he tried to parley with the natives. The Indians were, of course, wary of Pizarro. He had, after all, been torturing and murdering men and women. But one man, a chief by the name of Delacola, would engage with Pizarro. Pizarro would give the chief some simple gifts and ask if he had information about El Dorado or a great civilization in the region. The native chief, Delacola, replied, Oh yeah, sure, far away, head east down the river. The lands there are very rich. It was a typical response, a way to get rid of interlopers. And it worked, because now Pizarro had a way to proceed toward the legendary El Dorado. Unfortunately for the Indian chief, Delacola, Pizarro decided that the man would make a good guide, so he took him prisoner. Good try, Delacola, but now you're along for the ride. Pizarro would continue along the river, eventually coming to a huge waterfall, which today we call San Rafael Falls. The 500-foot waterfall would have been a stunning sight. Unfortunately for Pizarro, if he wanted to return to his main army, he now found himself on the wrong side of the Coca River. This would force his men to build yet another bridge over a gorge. On the other side, the Spanish were met with great resistance from the natives. However, once the Spanish arquebusiers let off a couple rounds, the Indians were driven off. The Spanish would then capture the village, called Guema. Pizarro would then dispatch some men to Oriana with orders to bring the army to the village. They would then be able to descend the Coca River toward the rich lands that Delacola had spoken of. At this point, Reuniting the army likely probably gave everyone a sense of purpose. According to the natives, a great civilization was down the river. They only had to push on. Also, there was a sense of desperation gripping the expedition as they knew that food was getting low. A civilized region would offer sustenance. A reconnaissance force would strike out ahead of the main army, and they would come to yet another river, the Napo. The Spanish would move down the Coca toward the confluence of the two rivers. I want to stop and mark a moment of realization for Pizarro and Oriana. It was here that, while on a high vantage point, they saw the Napo and Coca rivers, and they understood that this may be part of the fabled Amazon. This is important because when Oriana heads down the Amazon, it's good to understand that he's got an idea of where this is all headed. He's not heading blindly into nothingness. Anyhow, Pizarro would lead his men down the Coca toward the Napo, Along the way, they proceeded to attack the first village that they came upon. This was Pizarro's way. He liked to get the upper hand, show the natives who was boss. You get the idea. He would capture 15 canoes at the village and a little bit of food. Food, by the way, was getting more and more scarce by this time. The native porters, remember there had been 4,000 of them, were mostly dead or dying or had run off. And the Indians weren't just dying from the elements. Apparently, smallpox had come east with the Indians, and they were dying in droves from the disease a fate that would befall many natives of the Americas for the next several centuries. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, Using the newly acquired canoes, Pizarro sent out groups of men to scout down the river. They would trade for food when possible, swapping beads and bells for fish and yucca. Yucca is a tubular root like a potato, common to the region. Pizarro would also send off raiding parties on foot when possible, and steal food if any was available to be had. 
So here was Pizarro and Oriana and their ragged army of Spanish conquistadors. It was October 1541. It had been eight months since they had left Quito, and they had traveled only 150 miles. And it was at this time and place that Pizarro had a bit of an epiphany. He realized that he had before him the best highway imaginable, the river. He saw how the natives used the river. It was often their only method of transportation. There were villages that the Spaniards had come upon where they found no footpaths leading to or from the homes. The only way in and out was by the river, using canoes. The river was the superhighway of the region. Why not use it? Thus, Pizarro decided he needed to build a boat. The man's intuition was actually pretty good here. Using the river was a solid plan. He had heavy supplies to carry, such as gunpowder and ammunition, and there were injured and sick men that couldn't walk. And with the native porters mostly dead, a boat was a perfect way to transport all the heavy supplies and the sick and the wounded. Thus, in October 1541, construction of a brigantine would commence. So, what exactly is a brigantine? Well, a brigantine was a small, sail-and-oar-driven vessel. It was generally quick and maneuverable. They were commonly used in areas like the Caribbean and the Mediterranean, as well as rivers all over the world. The Spanish would set up a camp, calling it El Barca, which means the boat. Very clever. It was about 10 miles upstream from the confluence of the Coca and Napo rivers, near the present-day city of San Sebastian del Coca. I do want to mention that, if you haven't already, you can see a map of all of our adventures on the website, explorerspodcast.com. I recommend taking a peek. So, while the brigantine was being constructed, Oriana would spend time with the natives, including the captured chief, Delacola. He would learn the tongue of the Indians and prove to be an extremely effective interpreter. Gaspar de Carvajal, one of the priests on the journey, would later note that Oriana's linguistic skills would be essential to the survival of the expedition. So, the brigantine would take about a month to construct. The Spanish would need iron for nails. They would scrounge it from wherever they could. They would take the horseshoes off the horses that had died or been killed for food, and the men would even donate their own armor to the cause. Then they would set up a forge to make the nails. The men, led by Pizarro, who was a tireless leader, would cut down trees. Pitch for the boat would come from tree resin. Fiber for cordage would come from wild coconuts as well as tree bark. The end result was a brigantine. It was not large, only big enough for maybe 20 to 30 men, and it would only support three to four rowers to a side. But the ship, dubbed San Pedro, would be the mule for the expedition. All the heavy supplies could be put in the boat, along with the men who were too sick or injured to walk on the shore. On November 9, 1541, the expedition set off yet again. Most of the porters were now dead, and only a few of the horses and pigs and dogs were still alive. As noted, the sick and injured would be placed on the brigantine. Some of the men would ride in canoes that had been captured, but the rest of the men would march down the river along the banks. The expedition would reach the Napo River, and as they went, they noticed that the villages were becoming scarcer and scarcer. From their captives, Oriana came to learn that the Spanish were heading into a vast, uninhabited land, a swamp. They were warned by Delacolo that food would become scarce. And Delacolo would be right. The Spanish would head into a tangled region of swamps and rivers and channels. Those on the boat were just fine, but the men on the shore were going at a snail's pace as they struggled to find solid ground to advance upon. For 43 days, the Spanish did not sight another human being. Food was getting desperately low, and the swamps were claiming the lives of men and animals. It was during this time that the natives the Spanish had captured, including the chief, Delacola, escaped, leaving them with no guides. And that brings us to December 25, 1541, Christmas Day. The expedition was on the brink of disaster. They had traveled 150 miles down the Napo River, but they were almost out of food. The men would boil the leather of horse saddles for a Christmas meal. Things were bleak. But it was here that Oriana offered up a new strategy. He proposed that he take the brigantine and the canoes and head down the river with a select group of healthy men. Based upon his conversations with the natives, Oriana knew that the Napo would flow into yet another great river. It was there that they were expected to find more native villages, which meant food. Oriana estimated that it would take him 12 days to sail down the river and find food and return to the army. Perhaps they would even be able to bring back some food or, at the very least, direct the army to where the food could be found. Desperate to find a way out of the situation, Pizarro agreed to Oriana's plan. As noted, Oriana would take only the healthiest of men. He didn't want anyone sick or injured slowing him down. 
On the brigantine, they would load all the heavy tools for construction, such as horseshoes, tackle, and boat-building tools and materials. This way, Pizarro's troops wouldn't have to carry them. Also, they would have plenty of weapons, including arquebuses, crossbows, ammunition, and powder. Again, no point in Pizarro's men carrying all that stuff. Oriana would set off on December 26, 1541. He had 57 men with him in total. That included a pair of priests and two African slaves. I do want to note a couple of people that came along with Oriana. The first was Francisco de Isasaga, a Basque scribe, and the second was Friar Gaspar de Carvajal. I want to take a moment and talk about Carvajal, as he is an important player in our story. Carvajal had been born in Trujillo, just like Oriana and Pizarro, around 1500. He had entered the Dominican order as a youth and come to Peru in 1533, dedicating his life to converting the natives to the Christian faith. Carvajal would record the entire expedition in a journal, and his writings have survived to this day. Thus, much of what we know, especially going forward, is from Carvajal's journals. So, down the Napo River, the brigantine, San Pedro, went. In addition to the brigantine, there were 22 canoes, which means that the Spanish had added several to their numbers since capturing the 15 earlier in the year. On the second day of the journey downriver, disaster almost struck the small armada when San Pedro struck a submerged log. The log impaled the ship. Luckily, the men in the nearby canoes acted quickly. They paddled up to the ship and hauled the boat ashore. Once on the beach, the hull was repaired and disaster was averted, and the journey continued. As the days passed, Oriana and his men began to know how fast the river was moving. Because of the rapid current, Oriana was concerned that it would be impossible to return up the river. Oriana would find no people or villages as they moved downriver. After about a week, the force was out of food. Remember, Oriana had taken the best of the men, but they were still starving. The troops took to going on shore and scouring the forest for roots and herbs. On New Year's Day, 1542, Oriana reported hearing drums, but no one else heard them. He was now worried that he was becoming delirious. But then, the next day, January 2nd, four canoes appeared before them. The Indians were startled by the Spanish. They sounded the alarms using whistles and shouts and drums as they turned around and headed downstream. Oriana followed, and he would quickly come upon a village where a great number of men bearing spears and clubs had assembled. The natives were stunned at what they saw. For the first time, they were seeing white men, and no doubt they had never seen a boat like San Pedro. This was a critical moment for Oriana, and he decided to act boldly and decisively. Despite their weakness, the Spanish were soldiers, and when Oriana gave them orders to get ready for battle, their discipline took hold. The men strapped on their armor and helmets and headed for the shore. There they beached the boat near the village and disembarked with swords ready, a battle line drawn. The aggressive stance of the Spanish apparently did the trick, and the natives fled. Oriana and his men quickly took possession of the village, and the first thing they did was eat. They found maize, fish, and monkey and bird meat, for hours the Spanish ate, all the while keeping a wary eye on the natives who had gathered downstream, not daring to confront the strangers. Finally, a small band of warriors and canoes approached, and Oriana decided to turn to diplomacy. Despite the food, his men were not in any shape to fight, and the Indians down the river were numerous. Using the language skills he had acquired over the past months, Oriana greeted the Indians in a friendly manner. Then he gave them some simple gifts, opening the door for a conversation with the natives. After all of this, the native chief came over and embraced Oriana, their way of saying that this was now a peaceful exchange. Oriana would give the chief a pair of boots and a belt, items that apparently fascinated the chief. In return, the Spanish asked for food, and it was brought to them. Thus, in the end, diplomacy had won the day. Carvajal would later write, quote, His knowledge of the language was, after God, the deciding factor in preventing us from perishing on that river, end quote. The village they had found was called Imara, and it was a lifesaver for the Spanish. They needed to recuperate, and this was the spot for them. They would get ample food and rest. The natives grew maize and yucca. They had homes on stilted platforms to escape flooding. They even had stairs cut from tree trunks that had to be used to reach the main house of a home. The Indians were, as you can imagine, fascinated by the Spanish. Their beards, their armor, their swords, everything. The local tribes consisted of 13 chiefs, all of whom would come and visit Oriana during his stay in Amaro. I want to mention that Oriana had the requerimiento read to the natives. 
The Requiemiento essentially said that the natives were now part of the Spanish Empire, and if they did not become Christians, they were considered enemies, that sort of thing. It was honestly pretty absurd. The natives did not understand what was being said, and if they did, they would simply have attacked the Spanish, as had happened in other places in the New World. Now, let's remember that Oriana was on a mission. He was supposed to head downriver, find food, and then return to Pizarro, all in 12 days. Well, the food had been found, and the 12 days had passed. And Oriana's men made it perfectly clear they didn't want to go back. Rowing the brigantine back up the river, they felt was impossible. The current was too strong. Oriana decided what he would do was he would send some men back in canoes. He asked for volunteers, and even offered financial incentives to anyone who stepped forward. Some of the natives even offered to go along as guides. But only three Spaniards would volunteer, and Oriana sensed that he would have a mutiny on his hands if he pushed the matter. No one wanted to go back through the swamps. They had almost starved to death coming downstream, and this time they would be going against the current. It would be a terrible risk. It was here that Oriana made two critical decisions. First, he would not send anyone back to Pizarro. It was suicide to do such a thing. Now, this is a huge decision, because he is now disobeying orders from one of the most powerful men in the New World, a man whose cruelty was legendary, and whose family was one of the richest in the world. Instead of heading back upstream, Oriana decided that he would wait to see if Pizarro or anyone else would reach him. In the meantime, he came to a second major decision. He decided it was time to build another boat. So, with Oriana committed to heading downstream, let's go back and see what happened to our friend, Gonzalo Pizarro. After Oriana sailed off, Pizarro led his men after him. But this was slow going. Pizarro had the weak and the sick with him, not to mention any animals that had survived. He sent his best men ahead, hacking a path down the river that the rest could follow. The conditions were frankly terrible. It rained constantly. There were army ants and spiders and snakes. The men were lucky to make three or four miles in a day. Then, just like Oriana, Pizarro and his men would come to the swamps. Luckily for the Spanish, they discovered five abandoned Indian canoes. Pizarro would send one of his men, Captain Alonso de Mercedillo, along with a dozen men into the swamp in the canoes, a scout ahead. Meanwhile, food had run out. Most of the horses had been eaten. The Spanish were now eating snakes and lizards and bugs. Also, salt depletion was rampant. Salt depletion causes vomiting, diarrhea, fevers, and cramping. The men were miserable. Mercedillo would return eight days later, but he had found no food, no Indians, no villages, and no sign of Oriana. Pizarro decided that he would give it one more try, this time dispatching the veteran soldier Gonzalo Diaz de Pineda downriver to find food. Pineda set out in the canoes with a small force. Eventually, he reached the Aguarico River and found a campsite on the shore where Oriana and his men had spent the night. Unfortunately, Oriana and his men had left no indication of the direction they had gone, so Pineda headed up the Aguarico instead of continuing down the Napo, as Oriana had done. Pineda would go up the Aguarico about 30 miles, and there he found an abandoned village, and more importantly, a yucca plantation. Pineda loaded the canoes with yucca and sent them back to Pizarro. When the canoes finally got back to the main body of men, they had been gone for 27 days. Pizarro was, of course, thrilled at the news of the food, as were his men. They immediately set off. It would take eight days for the smaller army to reach the Aguarico River, and then another ten days to reach the abandoned yucca plantations. By this time, the men were starving, and they gorged themselves on the raw yucca. But this was a problem. Raw yucca is poisonous, especially if you eat a lot of it. There are two types of yucca, one called sweet, which will make you sick if eaten raw, but nothing terrible. You just need to boil it or bake it or roast it, and it's fine. The other type, called bitter, is full of cyanide. Much more complex preparation is required before it is edible. The natives knew this, but the Spanish didn't have them around to pass on this vital information. As a result, many of those who ate too much of the raw yucca became sick. Those that ate the bitter version grew jaundiced and weak from constant vomiting. Their stomachs would bulge out, and many suffered from horrible diarrhea. Several would eventually die. The Spanish took to cooking the yucca, as they had seen the Indians do, and they would survive. But Gonzalo Pizarro now realized what Oriana had done. He had gone downstream and not come back, and he had not left any indication on exactly where he had gone. Pizarro was furious. Oriana, in his mind, was a traitor. 
but Pizarro would have to put aside his anger for now. He had given up any hopes of finding El Dorado or any such great civilization, but his men were sick and dying. He had to get home, but he didn't really know how to return to Quito. For lack of anything better, the force would set off up the Aguarico River. The men who were too sick to walk were carried by those who could. As before, the healthiest of the men were sent ahead, hacking a trail for the troops to follow. By now, most of the men were in bare feet, as their boots had rotted away. Some of the men made shoes by weaving together great blades of grass. For 200 miles, the Spanish trekked their way up the Aguarico River. The march was rugged and mountainous, and it was frequently uninhabited, which meant they would find no food. When they did encounter Indians, the Spanish tried to trade with them, but other times they would just get into a fight and seize whatever food could be had. The force would eventually reach the headwaters of the Aguarico. Here, the Spanish could see the mountains. They knew if they could just find a pass over them, they could make their way home. As before, the Spanish would fight their way west, up the mountain, battling the natives as they went. But as they got higher up, Pizarro and the surviving Spaniards would find some good fortune when they came across a friendly Indian tribe. The Spanish would stay with the Indians, who fed and sheltered them for ten days. It would offer the Spanish a well-needed rest before their final push over the mountains. And over the Andes, the Spanish would go, helped by a shortcut shown to them by the Indians. Finally, in June of 1542, eighty emaciated, pale men marched into Quito. Most of the men were nearly naked, their clothing having rotted away months ago. When Oriana had departed the previous December, Pizarro had been left with 200 men. Disease, illness, drowning, and combat had claimed more than half of those. In addition, the horses were all dead, as were the dogs and the pigs, and we can't forget about the 4,000 native porters. Most of them had died, although some had escaped. Pizarro was offered a horse to ride on as he entered the city, but he refused, preferring to walk with the men he had endured so much with. The survivors would march to the city's cathedral, where they would give thanks to God for their return. So, Gonzalo Pizarro was back in Peru, and he was furious at what he viewed as a betrayal by Oriana. But he had other things on his plate, because on his return, he learned that his brother, the governor of Peru, the conqueror of the Incas, Francisco Pizarro, was dead, murdered by his rivals a year earlier, in June of 1541. Remember, the Pizarros had defeated the Almagro faction in 1538, and executed Diego de Almagra. But Almagra's supporters had not been idle. They had plotted and waited for the right time for their revenge. They had seized an opportunity when Hernando Pizarro, another of the famed Pizarros, had gone to Spain in 1541. But the Almagro faction had been active in the Spanish court, and when Hernando Pizarro arrived, the crown had him thrown in prison, charged with assassinating Almagro. And with Gonzalo lost in the jungles, the enemies of the Pizarros decided it was time to act. Diego de Almagra the Younger, as he was called, was the 19-year-old son of the late conquistador and rival to the Pizarros. The Almagra faction used the young man as a rallying point. On June 26, 1541, a plot was hatched to kill Francisco Pizarro as he came home from Sunday Mass. The plot, however, was uncovered, and Pizarro had Mass set at his home instead of going to the local church. The plotters, upon finding this out, acted quickly, and they rallied their numbers and attacked Pizarro at his home. After a fierce fight, Francisco Pizarro was killed as he and his companions were greatly outnumbered. The conqueror of the Incan Empire was 63 years old. So, to say Gonzalo Pizarro had a lot on his plate is an understatement. He would write a letter to the Spanish crown detailing his expedition and recount Oriana's betrayal. But the man had bigger things to deal with than Francisco de Oriana. Instead, Gonzalo Pizarro had revenge on his mind and in his heart. And you just know it's going to be really, really bloody. So, we left Oriana in the village of Amaro. He had decided that the way to safety was to navigate down the river to the sea. What he didn't realize was that he had 4,000 miles of river ahead of him. For such a journey, he needed more than canoes. He needed another brigantine, something better than San Pedro. In Amaro... Oriana noted some of the natives possessed gold and jewels. Wisely, the conquistador didn't try and take the riches that he saw. He knew that getting greedy was the foolish thing to do at this time. Survival was paramount. This expedition was now one of exploration and discovery. Oriana felt that if he could make it back to civilization, he could return and collect all the gold and jewels that he believed were in the area. 
So Oriana kept his men busy with building a new brigantine and not stealing food or gold or molesting women. It was a good plan, as he didn't want to jeopardize the peaceful relations with the natives. I want to note that Oriana's force was now down to 50 men. Seven had died since arriving in Amara, lingering effects of illnesses and starvation from the long voyage down the Napo River. So, sailing down the river to the sea was Oriana's plan. The local chief, Aparia the Lesser, told Oriana that there were many villages downstream. He said there were wealthy kingdoms as well, including one that had much gold, but that was up one of the river's tributaries. Apari the Lesser also told Oriana stories of women warriors who lived far down the river, the first tales of the legendary Amazons. Oriana filed all these stories away for another day. He had a ship to build after all, and the first thing he needed to do was make more nails. Thus, a forge was built. The Spanish would work for nearly a month preparing to build their new ship. The biggest issue for the Spanish were the mosquitoes. The soldiers took to working in pairs, one man to do the actual work, while another fanned away the mosquitoes. When all was said and done, they would produce more than 2,000 nails. At this point, Oriana decided it was time to move on from the village of Amara. He noted that less and less food was being provided, and he got the hint that the villagers just weren't that excited to have him around anymore. So he decided to pack up shop and move down river, find a good location to build his new brigantine. But before leaving, Oriana took the time to put together what I'll call a cover-his-butt document. Oriana knew that if he got out of the jungle alive and returned to Spain or wherever, he would have to explain why he didn't go back to Pizarro as he had been ordered. What he did was he had his scribe record the events that had led up to his decision to not return to Pizarro. It would be all nice and legal. He would even get all the men to sign the document, which basically stated that the men had refused to go back up the river, as doing so would have been a suicide mission. It was hundreds of miles, against the current, food was short, and so on. The document then said that the men had petitioned him, Oriana, to lead them downstream. The idea was that he was putting the decision-making into the hands of the men. They had refused to go back. They had begged him to lead them going forward. Even the two priests in the expedition signed the document. All in all, it was a politically savvy move. Everyone was covering everyone's butt. So, on February 2nd, 1542, Oriana's men headed downriver, carrying their nails and as much food as possible. They came to several small villages, but found them mostly abandoned. When there were natives, the Spanish would trade for whatever food they could obtain. Then, on February 12th, Oriana's men found the Napo River was coming to an end. They were at the confluence of the Napo and Maranon rivers, essentially the starting point of the Amazon. So Oriana had reached the mighty Amazon, although he didn't know it just yet, and he certainly didn't realize just how far he had to go, 4,000 miles of twisting and turning water in one of the longest and most powerful rivers in the world. It was here that the Spanish came upon some natives in canoes. They offered the natives gifts, and in return they were given food. The Indians then led the Spanish downriver to a village where they treated successfully with Aparia the Great, a powerful overlord in the region. He would offer Oriana and the Spanish food and lodging and invite them to stay. The Spanish, to be honest, were lucky to have fallen in with Aparia the Great and his people. The Indian chief was fascinated by the Spanish, and he would prove to be a wealth of information for Oriana. The man talked in depth about the lands down the river. Oriana learned that for the next 250 miles, he could expect to be met peacefully, as they were the lands of Aparia the Great's people. But beyond that, he said, lay the kingdom of the Machiparo, the archenemies of Aparia the Great's tribe. They were a warlike people who would surely attack the Spanish. And beyond the Machiparo were the Omagua, another tribe of fierce warriors who would not be friendly. Despite all these warnings, Oriana had no other choice. He was heading downriver or nothing else. He could not turn back. The river was just too powerful. So he set up shop at the friendly village. His men erected a cross in the village, something that would draw great interest, if not reverence, from the natives. Oriana drew up plans for a new brigantine. It would be bigger and more robust, able to withstand a fight, a fight that he felt lay ahead of him. To build the new boat, the natives aided the Spanish in finding and transporting the timber to the river. There, a forge was set up, as they would need more nails for the boat. From February 26th to April 24th, two months, the Spanish built their new ship. Again, Oriana kept his men busy, avoiding encounters with the natives that, as we have seen throughout history, can lead to more conflict. During this time, Oriana reported being visited by a group of tall men with whitewashed skin. 
The men wore gold jewelry and had splendid clothing. They were emissaries of a nearby overlord and had come to see the strange white men. Through them, Oriana invited their leader to visit, but the man would never come. It's not known exactly who these people were, but they may have been shamans of some kind, or they may have been exaggerations by the Spanish. We don't know. I want to mention this, though, because when Oriana returned to Spain, he would report many indications of wealthy and advanced people, such as these whitewashed men. These stories would help fuel interest in the Amazon for many, many generations, as well as speculation as to the cultures that may have once inhabited the region. Anyhow, back to our boat. Oriana would finish his new brigantine in late April. The men would also repair San Pedro. The new boat would be christened Victoria. It was twice the size of San Pedro. It was also sturdier and supported 18 oarsmen. Also, Oriana had built the brigantine not just for the river, but for the ocean, as he knew that once he reached the Atlantic, he would have to sail up the South American coast to reach civilization. So, with Oriana ready to push these, he had one final thing to do. He had to cover his butt a little bit more. Oriana had his scribe, Isasaga, write up a new document. The new document again recounted the events that forced the Spanish to leave Pizarro behind, just reiterating that they had no choice but to keep going east. In the documentation, Oriana submitted his resignation from the expedition. It was kind of a lame workaround, essentially saying, hey, I never disobeyed orders because in reality... I had quit the expedition. Again, kind of lame, but it's a technicality that will help later. The men in the expedition then signed a document where they asked Oriana to take command of the force. This was again all legal cover. Oriana resigned, and the men were essentially creating a new expeditionary force. Oriana was technically not taking command of the old force because this was a new one. Again, all legal butt covering, but it would prove to be a good thing. So with his new force, Oriana would make Alonso de Robles his second-in-command. He was considered a quality soldier. Cristobal de Segovia, also known as Maldonado, another trusted and hardened soldier and one of the best men in the expedition, was given a prominent command role as well. On April 24, 1542, Oriana and the 50 surviving Spaniards loaded onto the two brigantines. They had aboard as much food as they could carry. Now they had a 4,000-mile journey ahead of them. And that is where we will leave our players for today. Oriana had found the Amazon, he just had to get out alive. Next time on Explorers, we will continue our trip down the Amazon as Francisco de Oriana leads his men on one of the greatest river explorations ever accomplished in human history. I hope you've enjoyed our story thus far. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.